1: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
2: I'm Jesse Bayless. And
1: I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Gallipoli, released August 28, 1981. It was written by David Williamson, based on a story by Peter Weir, from a novel by Ernest Raymond, uncredited, directed by Peter Weir, and released by Paramount Pictures.
2: Wait, can we unpack that for a second? Yeah. So somebody wrote a story based on a novel and then somebody wrote a movie based on that?
1: Yes. There actually might even be another writing credit that was that went uncredited. I don't know if that's the result of like some uh legal fight or something like that that this other person is mentioned mm-hmm. as an uncredited writer. Gallipoli, now known locally as Gelibalu, is a peninsula in Turkey. In nineteen fifteen, during World War One Britain, France, and Russia, operating from Gallipoli, sought to cut off supply lines to the Ottoman capital of Constantinople by taking control of the Ottoman Straits, leaving it open to Allied battleship bombardment. This would give Allied forces control of the Suez Canal and a safe supply route through the Black Sea to Russia.
3: Yes, Constantinople, not Istanbul, yeah. is uh, occupies both sides of the, the waterway that goes through.
1: Right. Bit of a spoiler here, but after eight months and a quarter million casualties on each side, the operation failed. The victory for Turkey would lead to its war of independence from the Ottoman Empire eight years later, and the excessive loss of Australian and New Zealander lives set both nations on the path of further separating themselves from the British Empire. Australia had gained independence in 1901, but was still subject to an imperial parliament until 1931. Even today, the nation of Australia is technically ruled by Queen Elizabeth II, though in a purely symbolic capacity. Director Peter Weir visited Gallipoli in 1976 and composed an outline that he handed off to David Williamson to adapt into a screenplay, though I've seen some sources suggest it's an adaptation of Bill Gamage's The Broken Years, a collection of letters and diary excerpts from the soldiers of Gallipoli. Minor adjustments to the story were required to secure funding from the South Australian Film Corporation, and ultimately Weir sought money elsewhere.
3: Was say, were, were the minor adjustments that 90% of the movie take place in Australia?
1: Well, I mean, they mostly shot in Australia still.
3: But I mean, also, like, just story-wise take place. Yeah,
1: there. that would make sense. Modern-day Citizen Kane, Rupert Murdoch, and Times Square and the fan producer, Robert Stigwood, joined forces to form film company r r They agreed to provide $3 million for the production, whose final budget topped out at $2.8 million, the most expensive Australian film to date impressively murdoch's father was actually a journalist during world war one and an activist against the gallipoli campaign the film makes use of 400 skilled horse riders half of whom were women disguised in uniform since not enough men could be found
3: aha (laughs) sorry (laughs) there are women in this film it seems yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) do you recall the last movie that employed women disguised as men on horseback when not enough men could be found
2: it was another war movie.
1: It was another war movie. Was it Kagamusha? It was Kagamusha. Gallipoli is screened nightly in various hostels and hotels on the titular Turkish peninsula, where the battlegrounds are still a popular tourist destination. The film opens with red calligraphy credits over black, and it all reads weirdly Nazi-esque for a movie about the allied nations in World War I. When the picture starts, Archie Hamilton is being coached by his uncle Jack for a sprint.
0: What are your legs? Springs steel springs what are they going to do
1: hold me down the track
3: how fast can you run as fast as a leopard how fast are you going to
0: run as fast as a leopard then let's see you do it
1: archie does a hundred yard sprint in under 10 seconds
0: nine and five
1: (laughs) eighths. the next day we see archie and a group of men on a cattle drive one of the men Les, doesn't seem interested in doing his fair share of the work and intentionally breaks up the herd when he's asked to take part Archie is quick to bring the group back together. When the day is done, Archie jokes around with an aboriginal man and Les calls him out for being friendly with a person of color, like he should be embarrassed.
0: Oh. Prefer the company of blacks, say Archie? Zach's <laughs> my mate. We ran together.
1: When Les suggests running is a girl's sport, Zach tells the men that Archie can run faster than this asshole can ride a horse. Well, what, a,
3: what a weird perspective. Running is a girl's
1: sport. Yeah, uh, things were weird back in the day. (laughs) They make a bet that Archie can run as a crow flies through the Australian desert back to the house gate and Les has to keep to the dirt roads. Everyone agrees that it's more than fair, but Les tries to make it a little less fair by insisting that Archie run barefoot. Archie agrees and they're off. As Archie nears the finish line, Les rides by laughing at him and informing him of his impending loss. But when Archie reaches the gate, he's passed by Les's unaccompanied horse, and Zack informs him that he has won the race because Les fell off his trusty steed some distance back. Uncle Jack is disappointed to see his nephew Archie fucking up his feet so bad for a dumb gamble three days before the big race.
3: I I thought the implication was that Les had died until we see him much later in the movie. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I wasn't expecting him to come back at all. The camera tilts down to reveal some busted feet scabbed and bloody. That night, we see Uncle Jack disappointedly bandaging Archie's feet as Archie promises he will still compete and win in the upcoming race. Jack compares Archie's potential to that of Harry LaSalle's, former world champion in the 100-yard dash. Archie brings up for apparently not the first time that some friends of his have signed up for the war effort, and Jack says, shut up about the war, you're underage.
0: You ran away from home when you were younger than me.
1: Not to a war. The next morning, over breakfast, we get a brief snippet of Archie's parents, and it seems like they could care less about the running hobby than they do about Archie getting a job. That night, Uncle Jack is reading the final pages of Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book to Archie's younger siblings. It works as a metaphor on several levels, with Mowgli, or Mowgli as Jack pronounces it, leaving the jungle to join the world of man, symbolizing Archie's desire to leave the home he's known and participate in the events of the world. At the same time, it works as a metaphor for Australia at large, a fledgling nation being called up for the first time to play a part in world history on a global scale. Jack seems affected by the novel's words. The next day, we see Archie pick up a novel from a nightstand, Every Boy's Book of Sport and Pastime, which looks from the Google Books preview like an extensive illustrated sports encyclopedia. Inside the book, Archie has folded up a recent newspaper article about Australia's contribution to the war effort. He taps a finger on the accompanying map of Gallipoli. We cut from here to an encampment beside some railroad tracks where a group of four men read the same article. Three of the four make up their minds to join before reaching the end of the article, but the holdout is Frank Dunn, played by Mel Gibson.
0: No thanks, if you blokes all want to go and get yourselves shot, go ahead. Well, I'm not scared to die for my country, Frank. Well, good for you, Snow. You go and sign yourself
1: on. Mark Lee was cast as Archie to portray the sort of contemporary ideal of a young Australian man, and Gibson was brought in as a modern counterpart, someone for the audiences of the 80s to better connect with. His friends point out that the war can't be worse than the shit he puts up with out here, and he agrees.
0: you got to join me? No. But I'm not going to stay here either.
1: We cut to a train with a banner that reads, Kimberly Gift, 1915, rolling past their encampment, and all four workmen abandon the job to hop on board. Their boss tosses rocks at the train, promising they'll never work for the railways again. Uncle Jack and Archie pack to leave and take a moment to stare down a poster of champion runner Harry LaSalle, whose 100-yard time is listed as 9 and 5 sixteenths of a second, barely undercutting Archie's 9 and 10 sixteenths. The family wishes Archie luck on his two-day trip to the race. At the race, a marching band plays It's a Long Way to Tipperary. Do you guys recall the last time we referenced this song?
2: Shoot. I do remember that it came up. I don't know what movie it was
1: the novel hitchcock's frenzy was adapted from took its title from the lyrics of this song goodbye piccadilly farewell leicester square oh yeah goodbye piccadilly farewell leicester square it's a long long way to Tipperary, and my heart's right there frank dunn shows up to register for the race and the man at the desk recognizes him as the stand-up start they call him the prize is 10 guineas and a medal but Frank inquires about placing a bet, specifically on himself. The man says it's strictly forbidden, but agrees to take a personal bet for 20 quid. He gives Frank fair warning that Archie is here and runs the hundred and under 10. All right, you're on. Uncle Jack gives Archie one last chance to pull out and let his feet heal, but he spent a whole day getting here. Archie decides to race. The crowd seems to know Archie well and he gets cheers. Jack and Archie go through the same pre-run checklist as before.
0: What are these? Come on! Steel springs. Again! Steel springs. What are they gonna do? Hull me down the track. How fast can you run? As fast as a leopard. How fast are you gonna run? As fast as a leopard. Right! Then let's see you do it!
1: When the race begins, it's clear the contest is between Archie and Frank as they pull ahead of the pack, but despite his injuries, Archie takes the win and the medal. The celebration is cut short by the arrival of the Lighthouse recruitment office. The entire crowd wanders over to shake the hands of the soldiers on horseback and add their names to the war effort. Do you remember the last time we dealt with the light horse?
2: Oh, was it the, um,
1: specifically the Calcutta branch?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the, it was the sequel to folks, which was called, it wasn't
1: a sequel to folks, but it was basically, right. But it
2: was kind of a, a a spiritual sequel to folks. Yes, sure. Uh, what the hell was the name of that movie? (laughs) it was all the old men that went to war um the
1: title is not super fitting which might be what's giving you trouble
2: it's, it's uh, what's the name of that movie
1: does richard know it's not the sea wolves it's the sea wolves. Is it, is it the
2: sea wolves yes
1: archie tries to apologize to frank but he doesn't seem in a chatty mood jack tells archie that this last run of his actually tied LaSalle's world champion record at nine and five sixteenths but archie interrupts him to confess that he won't be returning home with jack He intends to sign up with the Light Horse today. Jack seems to have seen this coming. I'm not coming home.
0: No, I didn't think you were, Ed. You bag right a ton. What do you got in it?
1: Oh, books, mostly. Jack offers Archie his stopwatch as a parting gift, and he can barely hold back his tears. Archie claims to be 21 on his paperwork, but his asshole friend Les outs him as being only 18. The next morning, we see Frank trying to sneak out of his hotel without paying the bill, but he's caught and can barely afford it. Walking down the street, he spots Archie looking depressed in a cafe and stops in to check on him. He apologizes for his post-race curtness and admits that he didn't expect anyone faster to show up yesterday. A waitress asks Frank if he wants anything, and he claims not to be hungry, but when Archie sets his leftovers aside, Frank is quick to claim them. I can't say good food. wasted. Archie tells Frank about his military rejection, and Frank says that they can reapply in Perth, where nobody knows he's lying. We cut right to the two of them hopping a train that night and sleeping in a train car. Unfortunately, Frank was mistaken, and the train wasn't headed for Perth.
3: Well, maybe the rest of the train was. Yeah. They, they, this one car got detached at some
1: local depot. Yeah.
2: How do you detach one car on a track, though?
1: If it's the back one.
2: Well, I, I guess maybe. You just it's leave the it there one. and then mm. crash
1: into it on your way back.
2: Well, yeah, I was going to say, aren't other trains coming through? You can't just leave a car. Well, on they're not. A cart
3: <laughs> he says it's going to be
1: two weeks before the next one comes through.
3: Yeah, it, it seems to be on some kind of siding because this is the end of the track. Yeah, maybe. But that, that's why like, I would definitely... Well, I've actually been in this scenario. <laughs> you
2: <laughs> were believe- left behind when you <laughs> jumped on uh, a train as a hobo? Uh, yeah, when
3: he's my, A number one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when my friend John and I were uh, in Peru we were on a bus and the scheduled stop there was no scheduled stop for where we wanted to get off right we had bought a ticket to get off at this location but i guess we had to be the ones to tell them to stop the bus
1: oh so they just drove past it
3: they just drove past it but we were smart enough to sleep in shifts because it was an overnight trip right and and so one of us was paying attention uh they so didn't. as soon
1: as you were past it, you were like, uh, we passed our stop. Yeah,
3: yeah. And and that was a whole s- situation. Yeah. We got left in the desert. Really? <laughs> we, much like these guys, we got left in the desert at night. They, they offloaded our bags and drove away with us out in the desert. <laughs> they said that a police car is coming for us. Oh, God. But that was, we had their word Gosh. and they drove away. That's terrifying. <laughs> they did come.
2: Were you okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We made it. Don't worry. We died.
3: We died. I'm a ghost. Oh, God.
2: This whole podcast is a lie. We
1: finally reached the twist, guys. (laughs) Listen, from the beginning, there were clues. (laughs) Where I talk like this. (laughs) The man at the station tells them it's two weeks till the next train out, unless they want to run through the desert, and Frank tries to make a case for waiting. According to the station agent, it's 50 miles of desert, and they can't possibly expect to make it, but he's laughing a lot for a guy who thinks he's watching two people commit suicide. He gives them a water bag for the trip. Frank insists they wait, but Archie won't hear it.
0: We shouldn't have waited. Quicker this way. That's what Burke and Wills thought.
1: Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Wills were a pair of Australian explorers who set out with the goal of crossing Australia's 2,000 miles north to south from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria. Despite many unexpected complications, they managed to complete the journey one way, but both men succumbed to illnesses on the return trip, like a day apart. Archie tells Frank they can't go wrong, follow the sun during the day, and follow cockatoos to water at night.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. We put our lives on the hands of a mob of
1: parrots. I don't see one cockatoo out here the whole time. Yeah. They press on through the heat and set down to rest after dark. Archie asks which branch of the armed forces Frank is signing up with, and he says he's not interested. The next day, Archie spends their entire walk lecturing Frank for perceived cowardice, But Frank makes the case that the war is Britain's and doesn't affect their lives at all. The weather turns and the sun is blotted out with clouds, leaving Archie directionless. I feel like even on a cloudy day you can tell where the sun is, though. It's where the clouds are glowing the most. Yeah. They wake up from a midday nap and Archie spots fresh tracks left by someone in the desert. He and Frank rush to catch up with whoever left them. The score gets very beepy all of a sudden. Yeah.
2: It was very distracting because... I, it's
1: an 80s-ish well, score. Well, yeah.
2: that was the thing, though. Is it, all of the sudden, it was an incredibly 80s score. Yeah, it's very synthy. But this movie isn't really... It's not set in modern times. No. And I don't feel like it. the score matched this after or before.
1: Yeah, I think... I, think, uh, I mean, this, the beeping kind of comes back toward the end. But I feel like this should have just been... Uh, an orchestral score it didn't yeah. need to be this weird digital stuff eventually they spot a man and a camel on the horizon he has a bit of meat to share and he tells them they're 10 miles from their destination when he asks their plans we get a clear indication of what little difference the war makes to these parts
0: you're looking for work no i'm after the war what war the war against germany i knew a german once how did it start don't start him don't know exactly, but it was the Germans' fault. The Australians fighting already. <laughs> in Turkey. Turkey? Why is that? Ask him. Because Turkey's a German ally. Uh, well, you learn something every day. Jim can't see what it's got to do with us. If we don't stop them there, they can end up here. And, uh, welcome to it. <laughs>
1: I feel like this is such an interesting way to frame the insanity of war. Yeah. Archie thinks it's hilarious how little this guy knows, but somehow Archie is still the butt of the joke. Yeah. Because he's wasted all his energy sorting the countries of the world into allies and enemies in his head without bothering to learn any of the context. He just knows the teams. He doesn't know why they're that way. And he's passionate to join one. Sometime later, Archie and Frank reach Dan's place where they can expect a ride to Larrabee on the way to Perth. They spot a young woman hanging up clothes to dry, and she seems shocked by the visitors. In their room later, we see Archie and Frank making themselves look real fancy before dinner. The crowd are excited to hear that Archie is joining up with the light horse, and they give Frank shit when he says he has no such intention. He says he's headed to Perth on business, and they start citing the latest war propaganda to shame him into enlisting.
0: While the Germans are crucifying kittens on church doors in Belgium.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that's happening. I really wanted him to say, never much cared for kittens, ma'am. Yeah. They share a toast to the light horse, and Frank can see that the girl they both had eyes on doesn't see him at all anymore. That night, Frank has some questions about the light horse, since it seems a cut above the general infantry. Unfortunately, Frank has thus far exaggerated his horsemanship, and we cut right to his first lesson with Archie. Later, their train arrives in Perth, and that night, at Frank's home, he helps Archie forge the necessary documents to enlist. As a fake name, Archie chooses Archibald LaSalle's, and as a fellow runner, the reference is not lost on Frank. Next, Frank uses wax, I think, to attach snippets of hair to Archie's face in the shittiest fake beard I've ever seen. (laughs) It does the job, though.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, it's effective
1: frank's dad walks in and does his best to talk frank out of the light horse reminding him that the english are monsters who hung frank's grandfather with his own belt five miles from dublin of course gibson would go on to portray scottish knight william wallace who was also hung by the british
2: i would also argue that by the end of this film he's totally vindicated
1: it's not super different from what we heard in breaker morant where it was like We helped the British do this terrible thing, and then it backfired on us. And it's like, yeah, stop doing that. (laughs) (laughs) That throwing stick stun of yours has boomeranged on us. Frank assures his father that he won't be much help to the British. He's just going to coast his way up to Officer and come home with a little respect for the first time. The next day, the enlistment goes according to plan. An officer, Major Barton, even asks if Archie is related to Harry LaSalle's, which they might assume again when they see him running, but he denies it. Archie gives Frank a couple last minute tips for the horse part of their tryouts, but Frank can't even get his horse to move, and it seems he has flunked out of the light horse. Later, the two men say their goodbyes as Archie is sent off with the recruits and Frank goes back to his normal life.
0: See you when I see you. Yeah. Not if I see you first
2: know how long it took me in my life to understand that joke yeah i would say it's been only in the last couple years that i realized what that joke meant
1: i always thought it was just like oh it's silly that i said not if i see you first because that's the same as you sing me but it's not right yeah. no
2: that's the exact no it's i will walk away because i don't want to see you yeah and i'm like oh my god i feel like i've said this so many times in my life and it's an insult and i never realized it was an (laughs) insult but it's such an
1: old-fashioned insult that it's not even an insult anymore
2: no i mean the whole point is that it's not an insult it's like oh i'm joking that you're terrible but
1: (laughs) (laughs) fuck (laughs) you that's what i say i just recently realized that's mean whenever people are leaving i go fuck you That night, the recruits board a ship and Major Barton's wife slips him a bottle of Moet Chandon to drink on their anniversary. It's clear from the look on her face as he leaves that she doesn't expect him to return. The recruits are all waved out to sea by a crowd on shore. Frank is drinking alone at a bar when his three friends from the railroad job show up to harass him for a round of drinks to congratulate them for joining up to fight. The next day, we see Frank's friends going through the physicals to enlist. One of them is about to be rejected on account of subpar dental health. He's
0: not all that good supposed to shoot the enemy, mate, not
1: fight him. Suddenly, Frank appears, and it seems he is settling for the infantry after all.
0: We don't take anyone with bad teeth. If you don't pass him, you lost all four
1: of us. The four are sent to the Australian training camp in Cairo, and the scenes were clearly shot on location because the Great Pyramids are visible in every shot here. The recruits play rugby at the feet of the pyramids, and Frank's buddy Billy comments on how big they are. Crikey there, Big. Crikey are Big. Do you guys recall the last time we had a character remark on the surprising size of the Great Pyramids of Giza?
2: I'll let you, Richard.
1: Is it Sphinx? It's Sphinx.
2: (laughs) We're the archaeologists. We're the (laughs) archaeologists.
1: Who doesn't speak a word of Egyptian?
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) My (laughs) God. Thanks,
1: (laughs) ma'am. Frank doesn't give a shit about the pyramids or what they stand for. He just wants to win this game of rugby. One player in particular is giving them lots of trouble, and Billy is chosen to brutally tackle the man. The guy Billy tackles is coincidentally the film's screenwriter, David Williamson. The infantry are lectured later on the local customs and eventually given a full-on sex ed course to prevent the infection of the army with Cairo crabs or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Sometime later, Frank and his friends are wandering through a marketplace when they cross paths with a pair of British officers on horseback. Billy almost salutes them, but Frank yanks his hand down like, no, fuck these guys. Frank and the boys hijack some donkeys and ride them past the officers while impersonating their hoity-toity British accents.
0: You Australians are crude, undisciplined, and the most ill-mannered soldiers I've ever encountered.
1: Later, Frank and friends are looking at a deck of pornographic cards in a hookah bar, to their friend Snowy's dismay, when Barney returns with a tiny sarcophagus he claims he's gotten for a great deal at two quid. Billy tosses an identical trinket on the table, claiming to have paid five bob british money words have always eluded me with their farthings and shillings and bobs and quids best i can tell a quid is 240 pence so two quid is 480 pence a bob is a shilling or 12 pence so five bob is 60 pence meaning barney paid eight times as much for his sarcophagus
2: thank you for doing the math
1: you're welcome sweetie (laughs) The boys all head back to the shop where Barney got ripped off and start harassing the salesman for a refund, but the shopkeeper insists that it's not his. Frank starts knocking over shelves until they give Barney his money back. After they've destroyed enough merchandise, the men get their money back, only to realize seconds later that they were actually in the wrong shop. The men sneak into a brothel, but Snowy is again disgusted by the carnal desires of his friends.
0: What are you going to say to your wives on your wedding night?
1: (laughs) He waits outside for them to finish.
2: Snowy seems especially religious. Yes. yes, Amongst this group.
1: Indeed. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone sit and wait for their friend to finish having sex with a prostitute? Richard? Uh, It was going to be Honky Tonk Freeway. That's correct. Joe Graffisi sat and waited for George DeZunza to get laid, even though he promised that wouldn't happen this time. Next, we see the infantry marched through the desert and prepared for a military exercise. They're engaging in a war game against a contingent from the Light Horse, and predictably, Frank and Archie quickly find each other on the battlefield and embrace in a big hug. They're reprimanded for their friendship and instructed to simulate battle. <laughs>
0: what do you really think you doing, uh, we might, sir. Right, This is supposed right. to be warfare. Oh, it,
1: they just pretend they're both dead and like lay down so they yeah. can laugh with each other.
3: Well, yeah, because, like, everyone who, who was killed didn't have to report. Right. And so everyone just flops and down. It's like, now, hold the
1: on, the... you're not dead unless we said you're dead. You, everybody get back up. Everyone's
3: like, who killed you? <laughs> who killed you?
1: <laughs> the rest of the infantrymen are taking it very seriously and beating the shit out of whatever horsemen they can get their hands on. Frank and Archie walk arm-in-arm arm through town, and Archie gives Frank a running tip. Frank is famous for running from a standing start – and insists that it saves time that Archie wastes rising from a crouch. They decide to race to the pyramids to prove their points. They basically tie and collapse laughing about it. Later, we see groups of Australians silhouetted as they climb the pyramids at night, which I'm pretty sure is, like, super forbidden. Yeah. Although, I I would definitely do it if I were working on a movie set in the area and they let me.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know how forbidden it was in the 80s.
1: I'm pretty sure it's always been a problem. Um, And I remember... When they were shooting uh the second transformers movie that john tortura was just sobbing because he got to be there and mm-hmm. he's like i've never gotten to be brought to a place so magical as this at the top of the pyramid we see a placard left behind in 1798 by napoleon's army and frank and archie carve their names into the corner of the same placard the next morning archie brings frank to meet with major barton and convince him that frank is light horse material he emphasizes that the task at hand wouldn't require any horse riding anyway They tell Barton that they're both sprinters who run under 10.
0: Oh, that's a coincidence. Young Lascelles runs under 10.
1: Barton agrees to do what he can, and then Frank breaks the news of his transfer by wearing a light horse uniform back to his buddies. They're obviously offended to find their friend snobbing it up. That night, a ball is organized for the nurses and doctors in the area. It's officers only, and Frank and Archie sneak in. Major Barton catches them and tells them to leave, but then opens a message from Colonel Robinson indicating that the light horse will be embarking in Alexandria tomorrow morning. Considering their uncertain futures, Barton retracts his order, instead permitting the men a couple drinks before leaving. The letter is dated July 15th. Happy birthday, Richard Wells. Hey!
3: (laughs) Also, Major Barton is like the most likable character in this movie. Right,
1: yeah. The light horse moved by rowboat in the night with visible explosions in the distance. As the distance gets closer, Archie smiles and Frank second guesses some of his life choices.
2: That that whole business like really bothered me that I'm like, why are you moving at night where you're having a big spotlight over right. everything that seems like a target? I mean, you have like to see where I guess, and at some point, I think they turn it off.
1: But there's but, also light all over this hill, so it seems like you should be able to just aim for that. I
2: guess it's safe enough to come in with this big light. It just seems like, hey, look at me! I'm there a target. There seems to be
1: a lot of disregard for the constant shelling of this beach, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So we're just we're just getting into it now.
3: I, I, I suppose the light is also an indicate that 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 it's not these aren't enemies coming at you. So don't, yeah. don't shoot this boat down. Yeah,
1: yeah. The next morning, Frank awakens to more shelling, or probably continuous shelling, throughout the night. He's annoyed by Archie's persistent grin. They're still camped out on the beach and rush down to the water to go for a naked swim, while shells are still exploding all around them. In the water, they must occasionally dive to avoid incoming artillery. Archie catches a slowed-down bullet in his hand, and another man gets a bullet through the arm. But a group of men carry him out of the water toward a medic, and they're all still laughing about it, like it's a big party. Well,
2: because they all bet on it. yeah. They threw yeah. a, they threw a coin and a hat on the way in. and So like, he gets
1: all this winner money Winner gets all. Yeah. I didn't
2: realize when they were going in, winner gets all means whoever gets fucking shot yeah. gets this pot of gold. It's like,
1: what happened if it went into your head? They just tuck all the money in there and send your body home? Later in the trenches, a man takes a shot at the enemy while Frank watches through a makeshift periscope. He asks if he hit the guy he was shooting at and through the scope we see the enemy holding up a bullseye and pointing to where he struck the target. Further down the trenches we see soldiers shaking hands with an arm protruding from the wall. It seems these men are burying their dead in the trench walls and rather sloppily so that everybody can shake the dead man's hand for luck as they pass by. We see men building bombs on the beach with bullet shells for shrapnel. Other soldiers barter their war trophies sabers and lugers presumably taken off dead Germans. That night Frank's pals wash up on shore with the arriving infantry, and he introduces them to Archie. In his tent, Major Barton is being informed of a planned attack on Neck, which will utilize the Light Horse forces, but inconceivably the commanding officer openly admits that the operations are diversions, albeit vitally important ones. They're here to draw Turkish attacks away so that 25,000 British troops can make landfall unencumbered and move inland. Barton makes it known that the distraction is a suicide mission. Sir, the Neck is a fortress protected
0: by at least five machine guns a point blank range. Yeah, we've considered that, Barton. We're going to hit their trenches with the heaviest barrage of the campaign just before you men go over the top.
1: They assure that the Turks will clear out and the British will take Constantinople and Turkey will be out of the war. Frank and his infantry pals are all crowded together in the trenches to prepare for the latest movements. He tells his friends about the supposed plan at the Neck and none of them seem to buy the part about the machine guns being taken out in advance. Hours later, we see Archie and Frank waiting in a cemetery on a hill for the infantry assault. When are they
0: going? Right about now.
3: Uh, Whenever there's an explosion, they do this really kind of weird, I guess it's a, a post-production effect. Yeah, I, I sh- if the, the camera the, shakes? Yeah, well, it's not even a camera shake. I think it's just, they're just shaking the film. Hmm. like somehow somehow because
1: a camera shake it it comes with a blur yeah there's no blur there's
3: no blur it's like they're taking the 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 cell of the film and jiggling it
1: yeah if the camera were actually shaking there would be a motion blur It, it honestly feels like something that they did in a remaster like years later not something that they would have done at the time that night frank finds billy and learns barney was killed in the offensive and when he asks about snowy he's sent to a medic tent where Snowy is living up to his name with a pale gray face. According to the tag on his shirt, he has a gunshot wound in the abdomen, which is not the best place to get shot. Well,
3: and they, they're not not—they're <laughs> not giving him any food or water, which was basically like, because he's dead. Yeah, like it's a
1: waste of supplies.
2: Well, I don't know. If the, like, it's just going to fall out
1: of him like a cartoon. Well,
2: yeah, but usually <laughs> no food or water means you're going into surgery. But right. they know that it's serious and they don't want to—you know your guts to leak all over when they right. have to cut you open and
1: they also don't want you to asphyxiate on it if you vomit during surgery snowy can see the writing on the wall and slips frank his diary to deliver to his family so they'll know what he did here frank heads back into the trenches gripping the diary tightly and archie hands him a drink to calm him down archie is still excited to die for the country halfway around the globe from his country major barton shows up and asks archie if he's actually archie hamilton based on his hundred yard time
0: oh don't worry i'm not gonna turn you in i'm proud to have you with us
1: He's here to ask Archie to operate as a runner in an upcoming battle. But sir, I'd rather fight.
0: A few extra yards of speed, son, could save the lives of hundreds of men.
1: Archie recommends Frank in his place and vouches for his identical speed. In his tent that night, Barton drinks a bit of wine and sings along to an opera record loud enough for everyone outside to hear. I'm assuming it's his anniversary. Probably, yeah. The particular duet that he's playing is from The Pearl Fishers by Georges Bizet, which tells the story of a pair of men promising lifelong friendship to each other. Oh my God, they
3: were roommates.
1: Oh my God. The next morning, Frank is officially pulled off the front line by Major Barton to serve as a runner. Archie pretends it's just his luck, but I don't think Frank buys it. He knows they would have come to Archie first for this. See
0: when I see you. Not if I see you first.
1: Frank moves through the trenches just as the cannons prepare their opening offensive. Archie writes a letter home insisting that he was right to sign up and he'll prove it.
0: There's a feeling that we're all involved in an adventure that's somehow larger than life.
1: Archie is still smiling in the trenches as he writes, the last smile to be found in this place. For some reason, the assault on the machine guns did not follow their opening barrage of cannon fire and Frank is sent down to headquarters for an explanation. Frank brings Barton a phone, and Barton learns from the colonel that despite trenches full of Turks with machine guns, the Light Horse are to move forward across the no-man's land to serve as a proper distraction from the important British troops. The men are ordered up out of the trenches and relentlessly cut down where they stand. For whatever reason, they're given strict instructions not to fire, but to rely on their bayonets only. Yeah, Which is just doubly infuriating. You can't even shoot at the people shooting at you, because you might hit other... Use, I guess? Is that the point? They're trying to avoid friendly fire? I guess. Nobody gets as far as ten feet and the closer wounded are dragged back to the trenches. Archie finds Les sobbing in the trenches and is shocked to see it because Archie is just a dummy who still doesn't know what war is even though it's happening all around him. Archie and Frank crouch in the trenches as another wave of men are ordered to their certain deaths. A third wave are put in position and Barton gives Frank an urgent message for the colonel when the phone lines are cut. When Frank arrives, the colonel gives him a predictable order. Apparently, Lieutenant Gray reported an unsubstantiated rumor that their marker flags had made it across the gap and the colonel thinks they have a shot at crossing still.
0: Our marker flags have been seen in the Turkish trenches. The attack must continue at all costs. I repeat, the attack must proceed.
1: Back in the trenches, Barton chastises Gray for his error and Frank suggests Barton get a second opinion.
0: Why don't you go above Robinson head, sir? So.
1: General Gardner, go like the wind.
0: General Gardner, go like the wind.
1: The score gets beepy again as Frank blasts through the trenches for a chance at reason from the general, and I'm reminded unavoidably of the climax of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen as Berthold is sent running through battle. Frank makes his way to Gardner, even running through live machine gun fire, Gardner seems to have a clearer picture of what's going on.
0: Tell Major Barton the attackers. Now just tell him that I'm reconsidering the whole situation. Sir.
1: Frank smiles relieved and rushes back through the trenches to Barton as fast as he can. The men know what's coming and they cry and bleed awaiting their final orders. The phone line from the colonel rings again in the trenches and Robinson orders the next wave out into the line of fire. Barton says he's waiting for a confirmation from the general, but Robinson is insistent.
0: It's cold-blooded murder. I said push on.
1: Barton tells Gray that he wouldn't order his men to do something he wouldn't, but unfortunately that doesn't mean that he plans to disobey the order, but to follow it with them. Yeah. They all recognize it as a death sentence and hug and cry before their avoidable deaths. Everyone writes the last lines of their letters home to family, and Archie hangs Jack's stopwatch on his dagger before stabbing it into the trench wall. Frank gasps for air as he races back with the urgent message. Archie talks himself up to the attack.
0: What are your legs? springs. Still springs. What are they gonna do? They're gonna hurl me down the track. How fast can you run? Fast as a leopard. How fast are you gonna run? As fast as a leopard. And let's see
1: you do it frank barrels down the trenches announcing an urgent message but i think in his position i would probably be telling the men to wait since they probably want desperately to wait anyway barton raises a pistol and fires as he blows his whistle and frank is too late the men have been commanded out of the trench and they follow the order despite frank's urgent screaming archie reaches top speed in no man's land and gets three shots in the chest he arches his back to face the sky and the picture freezes in an intentional replication of Robert Capa's famous Spanish Civil War photo, The Falling Soldier. It also reminds me of Willem Dafoe on the platoon poster. Oh, yeah, for sure. We hear the wind passing over the battlefield, over the freeze frame, and the credits roll. The end. Gallipoli. Uh, very. Also, like, uh,
3: this whole running through the trench with the urgent message just is also very, like, night reminds me of 1917. Which sure, would, yeah. Which would do it later. Uh, obviously, great deal time later. but Yeah. But uh, a lot of
1: running with important messages. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: I actually like this movie. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I I, um, I feel like I would have liked more in Gallipoli. Yeah, that, right? <laughs> cause it's, it's like, when are we going to get to Gallipoli? It's, I
2: mean, honestly, like 35, 40 minutes in, all we've done is run.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the movie's more about is these two characters and their speed. And... I, I, I do think that part of the implication of the ending is that if Archie had accepted the task that this wouldn't have happened, that he would have that he's faster, that he would have been faster. and that he would have delivered the message in time. But the difference Maybe. the difference I think is that Archie would never say, Why don't you go over Robinson's head? He would yeah. just say, Why are we not killing ourselves? You're dumb for not just relaying the order yeah. from Robinson. But Frank could have saved all these people if he'd been a little quicker about it. Not about the running, but about the like, hey, We should tell them that we don't want to do that because that's a terrible plan and it's going to get everyone killed. Like he should have gone to the general before he ever went to the colonel.
3: Well, and I was so infuriated at that the guy who got on the phone who's like, "Oh, it's it's not really clear what's happening." It's like, "What do you mean it's not clear what's happening?" Shut
1: up! It's clear. Yeah, everyone's dead.
3: It's like, and I think I think I heard someone say some of our guys got through. Yeah, it's like,
1: whose team are you on? Are you secretly Turkish? Because. That doesn't make sense. Nobody said that around here. And no one would have any motivation to say that unless they were just trying to get everyone here killed. I can't tell if everybody died or if there was a fourth wave that never got sent out because uh, the Major was killed already.
2: God, I don't think so. I feel like everybody died.
1: But at the very least, I would assume that Frank would not go over the line at that point. No. But he would probably be killed in whatever ensuing battle followed if any of the Turks decided to cross. Yeah. Yeah. 'Cause there had to be some reason they weren't shooting at us. Maybe they don't have any bullets or something. I don't get it. Why aren't they shooting at us? But yeah, that's the end of the film.
2: I mean I I generally liked it. It's not a bad film, but like uh the big red one I think did it a little bit better. Sure. Um I feel like we we lingered on a lot of things um in this movie that I, I guess it established how we care about these characters. Sure. But not a lot happened in order to get to the
1: end. But I think the viewer definitely identifies most with Frank for the entire time. That we're watching the movie from the perspective of, yeah, this isn't their war. Why are they fighting it? And Archie the whole time seems like the the kid who is just trying to be loyal to his country right. yeah, above I, I, all else.
2: I guess you identify with Frank, but you cry you cry for Archie. Sure.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't know. By the end I was starting to get really mad that he was still smiling when he's writing his letter like, "What a fun adventure we're on." And it's like, "Fuck, Archie, look around you. Literally everyone is crying or dead. Like, yeah. Stop pretending that you're that you're playing a game or something. Like this is a real situation. Real things are happening around you and you're still like, you guys are all going to be proven wrong when I, I, mean, I go I guess, kill every Turk by myself.
2: But that was kind of the point of like growing up in the the outback that there was just no adventure unless you signed up to go off to war. Yeah.
1: It's so boring out here that I would rather die in a battle just for the fun of it.
2: Well, and and I feel like the
3: only training that we see is them doing a mock battle with bayonets. Right. And and, and I was like, okay, well, can you can you shoot
2: well, what was and, up with that? Because they were shooting. Do yeah. they have blanks?
1: Oh, dur- for the mock battle yeah. in the desert? Yeah. Yeah, when, when they do the military exercise, it seems like they must all have blanks because they are firing on each other. Mm-hmm. They're allowed to do everything except kill one another were the instructions before the battle. So they're literally um, allowed to beat these guys up. And like, they punch did. Them in the head. Yeah. yeah.
2: They were punching each other.
1: But uh, it's a thumbs up from me.
3: Oh, it's a thumbs up from me for sure. Um, I... Uh, other than the score when it would come on when it got a little weird when it was like okay this is okay
1: I mean it's not terrible it just dates the piece a lot
3: yeah well it it totally doesn't fit for me like I I I, it's so it's so synthy that I I just don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling from this music yeah Um, you know if I'm watching Thief and I'm hearing Tangerine Dream it's like yeah this is great yeah (laughs) I I love this
1: but uh, for Gallipoli um because yeah. the music fits the imagery really well. Yeah. Yeah. When you have flames and sparks shooting around, you want to hear electronic synth mm-hmm. music. But when the people dying in yeah, like the early supposed- 1900s, yeah. it's like, why is this <laughs> happening Yeah,
0: now?
3: It'd be like if Lion in the Desert had a synthy score, I'd be like, right. what? <laughs> like,
2: why is this happening?
1: I mean, I, I would love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are we thinking letterboxed? Richard, what are you thinking? Uh, I have it at 38. Okay.
3: Um, that puts it below Wolfen. But above Seawolves.
2: I actually have it very close to Seawolves too. I also have it close to Escape to Victory and Fort Apache Bronx. I ha- but I have it at fifty seven. Fifty-seven. It's it's not a bad movie. No. I'm going to defend it and say like it's perfectly serviceable as a movie. The problem is that it's not something that I would want to watch again and again. No. Because honestly, it's it's pretty slow and there's not a lot to it um but i kind of put it in the same category as escape to victory and Ford apache the bronx
1: so
2: that 57
1: and what are we at now 116 total
2: that sounds about right
1: that's fair um i actually have it lower than that i have it in 67 i have it just under the fan and just above high risk and that's just a couple below the sphinx (laughs) <laughs> because Sphinx was more fun, obviously. Than yes, it's. yes. It's a very well-made movie, but there's just not not a lot, like you said, not a lot of rewatchability for
3: yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, Jesse's comparison to Big Red One is like, I-, I can't imagine Big Red One had it been about the characters in America for an hour and forty minutes, right. and then the last twenty minutes in in, in the actual war. Like, wait, like, hold can, on, what? It's called Stripes.
2: Well, but like, you call a movie Gallipoli, and you're <laughs> like. This is what it's going to be about, and it's really just this last little bit, and you're just yeah. like, why are we running, and why are we walking across a desert? Why are we running? <laughs> I
1: don't want to run.
2: <laughs> well, yes. I don't want to run.
1: The director and the story came from Peter Weir. He's back after this to direct The Year of Living Dangerously, Witness, The Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, Fearless, The Truman Show, and Mastering Commander, The Far Side of the World. Writer David Williamson also wrote Weir's next film, The Year of Living Dangerously, and he was tackled in that football game. The novelist, Ernest Raymond, I don't know how he's connected to this, but... They have an acknowledgement for him in the credits. Yeah. Yeah. Like,
3: you know, like we wish to like, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but like acknowledge But the works these characters of...
1: are original to the story and Correct. screenwriter, yeah. so whatever he did was was some probably something akin to a story credit.
3: Yeah, and, or he sued the production in some kind of way to get this credit. Yeah. On I think the... he
1: wrote, he wrote a history of the Gallipoli campaign, and it informed enough of the movie that mm. that, that counted. Uh, but he doesn't have many credits that I recognize, but his work has been adapted as far back as 1929's Atlantic based on Raymond's play The Berg. Cinematographer Russell Boyd, he's back to DP The Year of Living Dangerously, and White Men Can't Jump, Forever Young, Cobb, Operation Dumbo Drop, Tin Cup, Dr. Doolittle, and Master and Commander. Editor William M. Anderson, he's back for The Year of Living Dangerously, Razorback, Fearless, City Slickers 2, Legend of Curly's Gold, down Periscope, Truman Show, and Igby Goes Down. Mark Lee played Archie Hamilton. For such a major part in this film, I really didn't recognize any of his other credits. The character was supposedly inspired by a line from Charles Bean's Official History of Australia in the War of 1914-1918, to 1918, which described Private Wilfred Harper of the Tenth Light Horse during the attack at the Neck. Wilfred was last seen running forward like a schoolboy in a foot race with all the speed he could compass. Bill Kerr played Jack. He was Jake Cullen in Razorback and Major General Stanley in the Pirate movie. Mel Gibson played Frank Dunn. We saw him as the titular Mad Max last season, and he's back in just a few episodes for Tim. He shows back up in The Year of Living Dangerously for Weir. He's probably best known, if not for the Mad Max movies, for the Lethal Weapon movies. He was also in Braveheart, Maverick, Disney's Pocahontas, and Casper. More recently, he's best known for his own directorial efforts, like Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto, and possibly for a plethora of racist, homophobic, sexist, and anti-Semitic comments that he's made, usually under the influence on his way to various jails. I I like that you credited him in Casper. Just slipped it in there, because he's in one shot where Bill Pullman's face turns into Mel Gibson's face in a mirror, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's
3: it? Yeah, it was... was (laughs) it's mel gibson clint eastwood rodney dangerfield clint eastwood and the crypt (laughs) keeper oh right yeah
1: robert grubb played billy he made his feature film debut last season in my brilliant career and he shows back up as pig killer in mad max beyond thunderdome david argue played snowy he comes back for the return of captain invincible with alan arkin and razorback and the coca-cola kid reg evans played athletics official one he was the station master in mad max last season and then he came back as jack the bat one of the inbred pirates of the island steve dodd played billy snakeskin he was Conkura in quickly down under and a blind man in the matrix harold bijent played the camel driver he provides the narrator voice in the road warrior don quinn played lionel he was mr witten father of one of the defendants in breaker morant last season John Murphy played Frank's father. He'll be back later this season for Richard Franklin's Road Games with Jamie Lee Curtis and Stacey Keach. Bill Hunter played Major Barton. He was Bob in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And he's equally lovely in that film. I really love the character of Bob in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. He's the one who falls in love with, I think, the Terrence Stamp drag queen or uh, one of the girls. And uh, he goes with them in the desert. And he's just like this sweet old man character. He's really wonderful. Peter Ford plays Lieutenant Gray. He was half of an arguing couple in Mad Max last season. Jeff Perry played Sergeant Sayers. He was Bubba Zanetti in Mad Max. And Don Barker was an NCO at the ball. And he played Mr. Paul Evans in Philip Noyce's Rabbit Proof Fence, which is another great Australian film that I really like. I think that's everything for Gallipoli. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound?
2: We got one!
1: That's right, it's a new patron, John Connell. As a $5 patron of the show, John now has access to 31 full-size 70s reviews and 36 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Hell Night, which IMDb describes like so. Four college pledges are forced to spend the night in a deserted old mansion where they are stalked by the monstrous survivor of a family massacre years earlier. We'll leave you now with a trailer for Hell Night. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Garth Manor. In order to be a member of Alpha Sigma Rho, one has to do what? To stay in Garth Manor one night. And why is this night so special? Because 12 years ago,
3: Raymond Garth murdered his family here and then committed suicide. And when the police arrived, they discovered a note written by Raymond Garth ...describing the entire gruesome act. But strangely, they only discovered three dead bodies. Andrew is still believed by some... ...to be
0: living somewhere within this house.
3: Hey, let's party! Quaaludes and Jack Daniels.
0: Oh my gosh, this is one radical chick. All right! Now the fun begins. <laughs> hey! Robin Hood to the rescue! <laughs> <laughs> Come here! Oh. Is that you? Cut the bullshit, Peter. This
2: is supposed to be a joke. I can't believe it.
0: What about it Seth is bringing back help. Seth isn't coming back. Well, then we'll wait. Wait until morning. And Peter and the other kids will be here.
3: Peter's dead. Or.
0: Well. Maybe there are more guards, maybe Seth's- Pray for day, hell night. Hi, I'm Dayton Johnson, the host of the Docking Bay 77 podcast. I love to talk about movies. First of all, it was Brad Bird's directorial debut. Once, yep. from the get-go, proving that he is one of the best directors in Hollywood. There, I've said it. It's so much fun. The jokes are great, like I said. And you have such a great uh, voice cast. Harry Connick Jr. as a beatnik was a stroke of genius to cast yep. him. I mean, come on. I love to talk about music. I want to talk about the first song on the album, um, Our Lips Are Sealed as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned this is a perfect pop song it's catchy it's fun it's not quite three minutes long uh, the vocals are great it's just so much fun and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it it's just a perfect pop song and I have a lot of friends who like to do so as well the witches are, are you know as long as they the creepy sexy witches <laughs> you, you know you're gonna be looking like the neck down okay good but come back to us Dave come back <laughs> <Yeah>. to us <laughs> No, I'm going with the witches. Uh, the witches are definitely much more nightmare fuel, but the fact that they look like the Texas Chainsaw Centerfolds. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of fun, and we hope you will give us a listen. You can find us on Podbean, Good Pods, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and remember, when it comes to watching movies and listening to music, physical media is better than streaming.